Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. We have a powerful show for you today. We're going to begin by talking about a study from Trinity College in Dublin. It's about how exercise impacts your brain. Three ways physical activity changes its very structure. All good news. Then we are going to look at some very important video clips. I was able to find two clips out of about a dozen from Professor Kerry Mullis. He won the Nobel Prize in, in chemistry for inventing the PCR, you know, the, the test that is used now to determine if you had the virus in your body. The trouble is he said not to use it for that. But he had a couple other things that I was unaware of until I went back and listened to this because I didn't use this in a documentary I did where he was in it. He talked about Anthony Fauci. Wow. He wanted to debate Anthony Fauci. He felt Anthony Fauci was wrong about how he was approaching virology, science, AIDS. So I thought this would be interesting since Fauci ran the war on AIDS, mismanagement, ran it off a cliff. It is my belief as well as many others that a lot of people Probably over 100,000 died because of Anthony Fauci's decisions. Now he's running the entire war on COVID, the pandemic, and he's mismanaged all of it. So we're going to have this great scientist, one of the greatest in American history. We'll have two pieces from him today. The first is a short piece of two minutes where he challenges Anthony Fauci. The second piece is also interesting because he challenges science. He challenges the certainty of science, people's ideas and opinions about science. Because how many times have you heard people say, well, it's our belief that you should stay, or no, we believe you should take this. We believe the statistics for death are, we believe that, well, science is not about your beliefs. Religion is about your beliefs. Ideology is about your beliefs. Philosophy of living is about your beliefs. But science shouldn't be. So we're going to hear what he has to say. But there's a senator who's a, excuse me, there is a Senate hearing where there was a physician, and we didn't play a clip. We're going to play it today. It's two minutes long where he also challenges academia academic scientists. Just imagine what it's like when you're a tenured professor, more often than not at a respected institution, and you have enormous grants coming your way from Big Pharma or maybe the Defense Department. You're not going to say no to it, but in the process of someone giving you that amount of money to do research, you have to understand there is a quid pro quo. They say there isn't. There is. They lie. So these are the people who are now leading the whole effort to discredit and attack anyone who challenges an experimental vaccine. Or they attack and challenge anyone who wants you to use an inexpensive, safe, and proven effective treatment that would not require a vaccine. And that is hydroxychloroquine in combination with zinc and zithromycin. Why would they do this? 
Yesterday we played two, two individuals, their segments, under oath before Senate committee. And when you, you see the one camera uh, off C-SPAN, there's no one in the chamber. It's like, we don't want to come to this. And thank goodness this was held. We didn't get to the third. In our archives, we edited in the third because we have unlimited time there. So you're going to hear from what is possibly the most interesting of the three physicians. And he will be, his segment will be on today's show. They're relatively short segments, but they all add up to one thing. You have been played, you have been used, you've been lied to by everyone in a position of power in the government, CDC, FDA, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, Anthony Fauci's uh, little private uh, dispenser of money, the White House, and you'll be lied to by the new White House. They're all pathological in this behavior, defending Big Pharma. And if you doubt that, we're going to have on a legislator. And this legislator has tried for over seven years to get anyone to co-sponsor a hearing because he's not a chairperson. So he can't, he can't demand a hearing under oath. And nobody that he's spoken to, including uh, Chaffetz, uh, Trigaudi, when they were in pra uh, practice as uh, legislators, um, there were three of them who are now in private, the private uh, workforce, but not one of them, who seem to be champions of truth, would allow a hearing. Isa from California just got elected again. He was one of them. So we have asked Dr. Brian Hooker, whose son suffers from autism, who was putting in over 100 requests for Freedom of Information Act to the uh, CDC, and lo and behold, one day, a man calls him, a man named William Thompson, a physician at the, at the uh, CDC, heading at the vaccine research on the MMR vaccine, and he, after several conversations, he tells him he has something to confess. That's when Hooker began to record the conversations. He said that the CDC and all of its scientists in his division were fully aware that the MMR vaccine caused over a 324% increase in autism spectrum disorder in African-American children 50, uh, 36 months of age and younger. Well, that's institutional racism. I said, did you go to the Black Caucus? Yes. Did they want to do anything? No. Did you, and no matter what he tried to do, he was blocked. And so... You talk about an open Congress? No. Big Pharma can keep everything from happening that in any way challenges it. So just understand, we're going to be doing a show. We had Brian Hooker on for a, a whole hour discussing this uh, because the feedback we got from a shorter segment, a 15-minute segment on the program two weeks ago, last not this past Tuesday night, Tuesday night previously, we had him on for a full hour. We had a phenomenal group, uh, a number of people who tuned in. So now we're going to have Brian Hooker, who broke the story, William Thompson, who's official whistleblower, but the CDC has not allowed him to talk, 
a group of pathological liars who are committing institutional racism and causing at least, it's estimated, 100,000 African-American boys to develop autism where this could have been stopped by banning this vaccine. So think of that. Wrap your mind around this. Wrap your mind around an, an institution, the same one that gave us the Tuskegee experiment for over 40 years, a whole group of African-Americans who had syphilis could have been cured, and they let them live with it to see what would happen like they were nothing more than laboratory rats. <clears throat> so, for those of you who are still of the idea that well, our government wouldn't do that, our government only does that. I could give you two to three hundred examples how the government has been complicit by itself or with private interest in lying to us on important issues. Weapons of mass destruction, the Gulf of Tonkin, these are big ones, but then you've got these others. And now they're lying about COVID. They're lying about the vaccines, protecting you, saving you, keeping you from spreading it, keeping you out of hospitals, keeping you from dying. None of that. What did they test? Are you aware of that? Read their own reports. So why then take a vaccine that will not guarantee that you won't get the disease, you won't spread the disease, you can't get the disease from someone else, you won't go into hospital, and you won't die? Aren't those the five most important reasons I get a vaccine? We would all, I would be the first to say, get a vaccine that could prove it could do those five and not hurt people. But no. So that's why we're going to be, and it's coming. Uh, it's starting in Great Britain next week and in the United States. And by the way, I'm going to share some information from John Whitehead. Do you know who's heading all of this? The military. The military. And boy, are they going to be strict about this. And who are they going to give the vaccine to? They've already come up with a battle plan. Yeah. Minorities. African Americans. Well, hold on. All the statistics show that minorities in the United States are at the highest risk of obesity, diabetes, heart disease. What are the three biggest risk factors for this? Obesity, heart disease, diabetes, emphysema. What is the science? Did you include African-Americans or minorities with these diseases in your study? No. I see. Well, that makes perfect sense. Give the vaccine to healthy younger people, but then make sure it's mandated and push it upon poor communities who already have autoimmune conditions. What could possibly go wrong? When I tell you that there's, this is the well, okay, so is it going to take waiting until you get the vaccine, until you see maybe they should have done it right? If you're going to do a vaccine, take the time to do it correctly. They haven't. We should be conscious that the first thing it are going to be the canaries in the coal mine. That's our program. In any case, from Trinity College, Dublin, comes a study that shows something that is not new, but it works specifically about the brain. Regular exercises changes the structure of our body's tissues, well, in obvious ways. For example, everyone in this audience who's exercised know that if you do it right, you're going to reduce the fat stores. You're going to increase muscle mass. You're going to have less visible fat. 
but perhaps more importantly, is the profound influence exercise has on the structure of our brains. And according to Trinity College Dublin, an influence that can protect and preserve brain health and function throughout life. In fact, the older you are, the more exercise should be a regular part of your life because it can help extend your lifespan. For example, with memory. Now, many people have memory problems, but many studies suggest that exercise can help protect our memory as we age. This is because exercise has been shown to prevent the loss of total brain volume, which can lead to lower cognitive function, as well as preventing shrinkage in specific brain regions associated with memory. For example, one magnetic resonance imaging MRI scan study revealed that in older adults, six months of exercise training increased brain volume. That's very positive. Another study showed that shrinkage of the hippocampus, that's the brain region essential for learning and memory, in older individuals, older meaning over the age of 40, can be reversed by regular walking. So power walking is terrific. And this change was accompanied by improved memory function and an increase of the protein brain-derived neurotropic factor, what is called BN, in, uh, BDNF in your bloodstream. And by the way, why is that important? Because the, the brain-derived neurotropic factor is essential for healthy cognitive function due to its roles in cell survival. And also you have the brain's ability to change and adopt from ex experience and function. Positive links between exercise and memory have been widely investigated, and it's important the younger you start exercising, the longer your brain will work for you. And also, it helps in the development of new neurons throughout adulthood. Neurogenesis, it's called, and occurs only in very few brain regions, one of which is the hippocampus, H-I-P-P-O, hippo, campus, C-A-M-P-U-S, and thus can be central as a mechanism involving learning and memory. So, and also the blood vessels. The brain is highly dependent upon blood flow, receiving approximately 50% of the body's entire supply, despite being only about 2 to 3% of the body's total mass. And this is because our nervous tissues need a constant supply of oxygen to function and survive. So when neurons become more active, blood flow in the region where these neurons are located increases to meet demand. As such, maintaining a healthy brain depends on maintaining a healthy network of blood vessels. And regular exercise increases the growth of new blood vessels in the brain regions where neurogenesis occurs. That provides the increased blood supply that supports the development of these new neurons. So in lay language, when you exercise, you improve the health and function of existing blood vessels, ensuring that brain tissue consistently receives adequate blood supply to meet its needs and preserve its function. And finally, regular exercise can prevent and even treat hypertension, high blood pressure, which is a risk factor for developing dementia. Exercise works in a lot of ways, like it turns off inflammation. That's important. Uh, recently, a growing body of research has centered on what is called the microglia, M-I-C-R-O-G-L-I-A, which are the resonant immune cells of the brain. Their main function is to constantly check the brain 
for potential threats from microbes or dying or damaged cells and the clear and damaged um, uh, cleanup. And with age, normal immune function declines and chronic low-level inflammation occurs in body organs, including the brain, where it increases your risk of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. So as we age, the microglia become less efficient at cleaning and clearing up the damage and less able to prevent disease inflammation. This means that neuroinflammatory conditions can progress. That impairs brain function, including memory. So, you know, just one of the reasons to exercise. It's that simple. And one other thing from the uh, VNA Faculty of Pharmacy in India, published in the Journal of Dietary Supplements, evaluating the anti-tumor and anti-hyperlipidemic effects of celery. Yeah, celery extract. And when they took a careful look at what was in celery, they found that it's an anti-inflammatory, it has anti-tumor activity. And that is very important. So if you want something every day to start the day, <clears throat> there's several things I recommend. If you want a really powerful green juice, celery, cucumber, green apple, and that is terrific. Now, there are variations on it. If you're having an upset stomach, if you're nervous, if you've had digestive problems, I'm going to add in some ginger, uh, fresh ginger to that as well. Maybe a one-inch cubic ginger juiced as well. If I'm finding that someone I'm working with has some problems with swelling in the ankles or pain in the ankles or feet, they might have some purines in there. They might have some lactic acid crystals. So I'll put lemon in it as well. Great alkalizer. So just remember, based upon this, you can lower your cholesterol. You can have an anti-tumor impact by having celery juice. And that's important. That's the latest on health and healing. We're 19 minutes into our program. We're going to take a break. And when we come back from the break, we're going directly to the uh, part that where the two-minute part where the uh, physician, highly credentialed physician, has published a lot of articles in peer-reviewed literature. He lets it rip. Mind you, for the first time in my professional career, I'm seeing ultra-orthodox mainstream medicine challenging ultra-orthodox mainstream medicine. There's a big brawl going on. And some of these guys are fighting. They've taken the gloves off. They're not being polite and courteous and, you know, with a professional attitude. Well, we, you know, we have some disagreement. No, it's bare knuckle. And this is under oath. These people's entire reputation, they're putting at risk. They know they're going to be attacked. They know that Big Pharma has all these, uh, these shaming campaigns. They know that the sock puppets and the astroturf groups, you cannot speak out against anything in the establishment of corporate America without being instantly attacked or deplatformed by Google, Facebook, attacked on Wikipedia, Twitter, and they're doing it. So in my opinion, they're the real heroes. We're going to have some of these real heroes right now in one group, back to back to back to back. Please stay with us. Uh, let me just say before I answer that, that, this is not just uh, a government culpability 
and uh, malfeasance with respect to hydroxychloroquine. This is academic malfeasance. There were two fraudulent papers, one in the New England Journal of Medicine, one in Lancet, published by individuals interested in doing evil to the world with respect to a beneficial treatment of hydroxychloroquine. In an unprecedented manner, these two manuscripts were withdrawn after two weeks where they could scare the public and the world's physician audience. Since that time, there have been dozens of fraudulent... Re-emphasize that. They were then withdrawn. They were withdrawn, and, and the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet acknowledged that they were fraudulent papers. They were scare papers to scare people on hydroxychloroquine. Since that time, there's been dozens of pile-on uh, scare tactics in academics. This isn't the government. This is people in my field, in academic medicine, who are committing academic fraud. I reviewed a paper. I'm a cardiologist. I reviewed a paper that made it into the me medical literature demonstrating that hydroxychloroquine causes a heart attack, that hydroxychloroquine causes a giant scar in the heart. And I can tell you, I'm at Baylor in Dallas. We have the world's most recognized cardiac pathology program in the world. Our senior examiner has held in, in, in his heart, his hand, in his hands, more human hearts than anybody in the history of mankind. I can tell you firsthand, hydroxychloroquine does not cause giant scars in the heart. So academic medicine is committing a fraud, is committing, uh, 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 a, a, I think, a crime against humanity. There must be a motivation behind this that's much bigger than just Democrat versus Republican. Would, would you, would I, I am extremely concerned, honestly, about the, the academic contribution to uh, 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 scare tactics uh, 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 in the world. Now, it's not working everywhere. In India, it's given first line. In India, is such a crowded country. I've been there myself. They, their deaths per million population. Science isn't a set of beliefs. It's not like Methodists and Catholics. Those, those people, Methodists and Catholics can believe whatever they want to, and they say, I will believe it. I'll stick by my story till I die, right? I'm a Methodist, pure and simple. That's okay for that kind of stuff. Scientists are not supposed to believe anything. Scientists are supposed to have some evidence that leads them tentatively to some conclusion or to some action. They're supposed to be able to show that to other scientists, any interested person, in fact, who's willing to understand what it is that was used as evidence, should be able to say, yeah, I agree with that. That makes sense, using rules of inference that we've used for, since Aristotle. Okay, and that's not, it's not complicated at all. You learn it in the sixth grade, most scientists forget it pretty quickly. But science is not a set of beliefs. I mean, there's only one belief in science that has to, you have to retreat to commitment at a certain point. You have to say, we do believe that if A implies B and B implies C, then A implies C. And we do believe that if P is a proposition which is true, then not P is a proposition that is false. That's all we have to believe in in science. The rest of it is tentative, awaiting further study. And almost every single thing that is considered to be a fact in the 20th century in another 200,000 years, it will look very silly. You know, if you just think, picture yourself being a real bright Egyptian mathematician and thinking that you really understand math and then see what you'd look like from the point of view of somebody in the year 2000. Did you really understand math? Nope. Was any of it right? Nope. It was all wrong in just a little way here, a little bit there, a little, there were things wrong with it. I wouldn't be surprised if 200,000 years ago from now, Aristotelian logic turned out to not be, you know, it's already starting to look kind of funny because of, of quantum mechanics. Sometimes things are true and not true at the same time. 
Something, sometimes effect precedes cause. Time isn't quite what we think it is either. Nothing is certain in science. There are no, there's no room for beliefs. Beliefs are for people. Beliefs are for things where you want to have a belief that helps bolster your courage in something, in order to act. So that's what religion's for. You know, there, there you say, I'm going to believe in something that's going to help me to get through this mess out here that I've got to get through. And I'm going to do that because it's useful for me to believe that. And the harder I believe in it, the p more powerful I get in a way. Especially if I want to start be bossing a lot of people around and I can get them to believe the same thing. But that's a belief. The difference between that and science was established clearly, at least in England in the 17th century, by the Royal Society, the founding of the Royal, Royal Society is still around now. They probably don't, don't remember this, that same bunch of assholes that people that won't accept my papers anymore. But they said there's a big difference between empirical science. Empirical science is something that can be done in front of other people. You can show it on a stage. I can do my experiment in front of anybody who is interested in seeing the results, and we should all agree on the results. We don't have to worry about why. You know, we really don't. We don't ever, if you, if you why long enough, you'll always come to a big because. And you won't be able to always know. But you can know what you showed. You can say, if I take this ball and I roll it down an inclined plane, it rolls down at a certain rate. It has to do, I think, with some kind of force we're going to call gravity. But I don't have to really know why it does. I can just show you that it does every time. We can make cannons that will drop balls on people's heads with the same principle. It works. I can show you that it works by making the cannon. I can show you by repeating the experiment. I don't have to know why, and I don't have to believe in balls because I can throw one at you. You know, I don't believe in them. They are there because I can pick them up. I have them in my hand. I don't believe in science. I don't believe in polio. Do you believe in polio? I mean, we are under the impression that there was a disease caused polio that it caught and it caused certain and it got into your brain and it was terrible for you and some people died from it. We have evidence for it, but we don't believe in it. It's not in some church somewhere. And if somebody came along a hundred years from now, studied the whole thing and said, you know what, there wasn't ever a disease called polio. It was a mistake. It was something else. It wasn't a disease. It was just, you know, I mean, then you change your your mind about it in science. You're always ready to have your favorite theory proven wrong. And if you're not, you shouldn't be doing science. In fact, most of the people that are doing science shouldn't be there. Children should not be encouraged to go into science, by the way. Children should be encouraged to avoid it unless they just can't stand not being scientists. It's not a wonderful area where everybody is happy and, and, and heroes. There are very few of us that get the chance to go over to Stockholm and pick up a prize. It's a hard job. There are a lot better jobs for people that have belief systems. I mean, if you want to believe in something, you can be a lawyer. You can believe in law. There's a lot of places in law where you can believe it's okay. You can be in church. You can be a church person. You can believe there. You can be lots of other professions. You can be in real estate where you believe things. You don't do too well in real estate if you use too strict a belief system. but. Science is a place for people that just are too ornery to believe in anything. They say, show me. Show me why you think this is one way. And I'll try to show you another way. And we'll both do this and we'll enjoy doing that. We'll debate about what is the, the, the actual outcome of the experiment. And we'll do it over and over again until we all agree. Then we'll move on to the next step. Make some gunpowder.
something like that, make cars. You know, we don't make, we don't believe in cars. It's not a belief. They're there. You can get run over by one. You don't have to believe in them. We believe in things like God. You know, the Catholics have sort of forgotten that, and that's why they sort of took a hit by science in the last century. It's a belief thing. It's faith. That's totally different from science. Okay, that's Kerry Mollis. Uh, I'm still looking for the other parts of our interview that I did. I filmed him twice. There wasn't a wasted sentence in what he had to say. He's simply saying that science is about reproducing the results. Others can take your protocol and follow your protocol and come up with the same results. And that a recent study showed that 67% of all studies that were reviewed could not be duplicated, which means that someone had the belief that they were good, they weren't. The New York Times, I want to thank Sharon Mullum, uh, award-winning investigative journalist, who sent me uh, this. The New York Times, faith in quick tests leads to epidemic that wasn't. Quote from Gina Collada. This is from 2007, January 22nd. Quote, I'll just, it's a Dr. Brooke uh, Herndon, an internist at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center, could not stop coughing for two weeks starting in mid-April last year. She coughed seemingly nonstop, followed by another week when she coughed sporadically, annoying. She said everyone who worked with her. Um, before long, uh, Dr. Catherine Kirk uh, Kirkland, an infectious disease specialist at Dartmouth, had a chilling thought. Could she be seeing the start of a whooping cough epidemic? By late April, other healthcare workers at the hospital were coughing, and severe intractable coughing is a whooping cough hallmark. And if that was if that was whooping cough, the epidemic had to be contained immediately because the disease could be deadly to babies in the hospital and could lead to pneumonia in the frail and vulnerable adult uh, adult patient there. It was the start of a bizarre episode at the medical center, the story of an epidemic that was not. For months, nearly everyone involved thought the medical center had had a huge whooping cough outbreak with extreme and extensive ramifications. Nearly 1,000 healthcare workers at the hospital in Lebanon, New Hampshire, were given a preliminary test and furloughed from work until the results were in. 142 people, including Dr. Hendron, were told they appeared to have the disease, and thousands were given antibiotics and a vaccine for protection. Hospital beds were taken out of commission, including some in intensive care. Then, about eight months later, healthcare workers were dumbfounded to receive an email message from the hospital administration informing that the whole thing was a false alarm. Not a single case of whooping cough was confirmed with the definitive test growing the bacterium. Uh, and Bordetella pertussis in the laboratory. Instead, it appears the healthcare workers probably were afflicted with ordinary respiratory diseases like the common cold. Now, as they look back on the episode, epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists say the problem was that they placed too much faith in a quick and highly sensitive molecular test that had led them astray. And it goes on. Well, guess all the people coming out now to state that the PCR test is inaccurate and shouldn't be given. Thousands of doctors and scientists, article after article after article, every day. We're compiling a whole list of 
the best scientists in the world talking about the PCR test, but that is the only test that, that, along with the nasal swab, I should say, that is being used to determine do you have this uh, virus, this COVID virus 19. The trouble is, it is not accurate. And that is confirmed in multiple studies. I don't have time today. I'll read you one tomorrow. It's just to say that if you're going to do something, do it right. When, when I just finished my, in December, we finished a 90-day study on could we actually physically change the biomolecular uh, parts of our body that shows that we were able to slow down, improve, reverse aging. We did it. And I thought that was the end of it until the, the person, the, the science director that uh, had given us the original protocol for our blood chemistry and our physical workout said, nope, duplicate it. So that why in March we had to do it again, and we did it again. Then, okay, we've done it. We even did it a third time, even doing it for a shorter period of time, two weeks, and we did it again, three confirmatory times. That's real science. That's real health care. That's where it means anyone else could follow that same protocol and come with similar results or even better results. And I'm even going to do it again for two weeks and a three. I'm going to do two. Uh, starting the last uh, two weeks of April, I'm, uh, I'm going to do one that duplicates the uh, one we just finished a month ago, two weeks, very intensive, but then one that has no intensity at all, completely relaxing way of approaching anti-aging. Now, has it ever been done? Never. We check the science, not a single literature check. Is it a theory? It is a belief. That's not science. The belief is that if you are able to change your view of yourself, the world you live in, to change how you perceive things, stress, angst, anger, depression, anxiety, fear, insecurity, uncertainty. If you can get through that and you are then only in a room with your authentic self, no duality, no dark side self, can you then program your cells to rejuvenate? That's my study. It's never been done. It's three weeks. I'm going to do the two simultaneously, and we'll see what happens. And, uh, my, and again, right now, it's a theory. When we come up with the results, we'll say the theory worked or did not work. And, uh, and we will see at that time. But it, there, there's not, nothing strenuous about it. It's, to the contrary, everything is very relaxing, very mind-oriented. And by the way, if anyone wants to apply, because we're going to be filled up, I'm doing three things. I'm doing a fundraiser for our sister station, WBAI, and uh, we'll, hopefully we'll pay for about a 1,000 premiums. Um, and then I'm doing the repeat of the, the one advanced study and then this new study. And uh, I, because I'm doing three things simultaneously, I can only have a relatively small number of people about 15 people for each one. So if you're interested, you can call Luann Panessi at 903-881-7008. 903-881-7008. That's real science. All right? That's when you're actually doing something that changes the entire way we think. Think, think of it this way. Think of the ramifications. If I can take a 90-year-old, uh, in this case, 94-year-old woman with extreme osteoporosis, um, and that leads to fractures and death and infections. And reverse that, that happened. But think of all the other people who could reverse it earlier in life and therefore 
not end up frail. Think of all the muscle mass we can put back on people. Think of the, think of the strength and endurance. Think of the estrogen levels. Think of the uh, progesterone levels. Think of the rebalancing hormones. Think of how much suffering we could prevent. We're talking about at least a minimum of 100 million Americans a year could no longer have to fall into that dark pit of medical pathology that they can afford or not afford, end up being a victim of or, uh, or survive from. We're talking about some big deal here. The implications, if allowed to be promoted, then again, do you not think for a second that I realize how everyone in big pharma is going to be doing all they can to undermine and attack this? Of course they are. But we also have a forum, and it's not a little forum. So now let's hear what Kerry Mullis has to say about Anthony Fauci. What is it, what, what is it about humanity that, 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 that wants to go to the, all the details and stuff and listen, you know, these guys like Fauci get up there and start talking, you know, he doesn't know anything really about anything. And I'd say that to his face, nothing. The man thinks you can take a blood sample and stick it in an electron microscope and if it's got a virus in there, you'll know it. He doesn't understand electron microscopy and he doesn't understand medicine. And he, he should not be in a position like he's in. Most of those guys up there on the top are just total administrative people and they don't know anything about what's going on at the bottom. You know, those guys have got an agenda, which is not what we would like them to have, being that we pay for them to take care of our health in some way. They've got a personal kind of agenda. They make up their own rules as they go. They change them when they want to. And they smugly, like Tony Fauci, does not mind going on television in front of the people who pay his salary and lie directly into the camera. You can't expect the sheep to really respect the best and the brightest. They don't know the difference, really. I mean, I, I like humans, don't, don't get me wrong, but basically there is a, there is a, there's a vast, the vast majority of them do not possess the, the ability to judge who is and who isn't a really good scientist. I mean, that's a problem, that's a main problem actually with science, I'd say, in this century because science is being judged by people, funding, is being done by people who don't understand it. Okay, who do we trust? Fauci? Fauci doesn't know enough to, you know. If Fauci wants to get on television with somebody who knows a little bit about this stuff and debate him, he could easily do it because he's been asked. I mean, I've had a lot of people, president of the University of South Carolina, ask Fauci if he'd come down there and debate me on the stage in front of the student body because I wanted somebody who was from the other side to come down there and balance my because I felt like, well, these guys can listen to me, but I need to have somebody else down here that's going to tell me the other side. But it was, you didn't want to do it. Yeah. And by the way, you can watch this in real time. If you go to prn.fm and go down to the Gary's notes, all of the videos that I play, you can go there and watch the video at the same time. And there are the notes. Like I'm putting in whole, the whole two-hour uh, Senate hearings are there. You can download them for yourself. There, therefore, you see that we're properly attesting uh, to the information. Now we're going to go to a short clip. This is the medical doctor. We did not have chance yesterday to play, but here it is. For the first time, you can watch it also under oath at a Senate hearing talking about hydroxychloroquine. Now think of it this way. One doctor said there's no evidence whatsoever. And there is. 
we've printed the actual evidence. We showed you a timeline of all the studies and the journals, peer-reviewed journals, 176 studies, 122 from peer-reviewed journals, the vast majority showing that hydroxychloroquine at low potencies between two and 400 milligrams a day. And for all the healthcare workers, you want to protect the healthcare workers first. And I'm going to do this on the air. It'll take a whole hour and I'll do it within the next week or two. How you build up your immune system naturally. That's the number one thing we should be telling every American. And we're not saying, saying a single thing. But you could do that. Then for the healthcare workers, nurses, orderlies, physicians, etc. Hydroxychloroquine with zinc and zithromycin once a week at low doses, and that would be tremendous for them. And patients, first seven days, we could keep probably 80% of the people who take that in the first week from getting into a hospital setting, saving lives. That would also no longer necessitate a vaccine. Ah, so that's the motive. So they attack the entire New York Times, all these rags, just worthless garbage fake news. They've all attacked hydroxychloroquine. Yet the truth is in the peer-reviewed scientific literature and the doctors. Here's one of them. Dr. Rish, our next uh, witness is Dr. George Fareed. Dr. Fareed is a family med medicine specialist in Brawley, California, with over 50 years of experience in the medical field. He graduated with honors from Harvard Medical School in 1970. After two decades of teaching and researching in academia, he returned to clinical medicine and established a general practice. Dr. Fareed is currently the medical director and family medicine specialist at Pioneers Medical Center in the Imperial Valley. In the past few months, Dr. Fareed has treated countless uh, COVID-19 patients, both outpatient and inpatient. Dr. Fareed. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, senators and colleagues, thank you for... Is your mic on? Oh, I, I hope so. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yeah, try and bring it a little bit closer. Okay. And by, right. by the way, all of your, you know, I know you have longer testimony. I, have, I know you have uh, different uh, attachments to that. All that will be entered in the record. Mm -hmm. Dr. Freed. Uh, again, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, senators, and colleagues. Thank you for convening this hearing. I have a background in virology, as you mentioned, uh, an academic background, research standpoint at, uh, from work at the NIAID, as a professor performing research at Harvard Medical School. After I graduated from Harvard in 1970, I became a professor there and later at uh, UCLA School of Medicine. A about 30, 31 years ago, I decided to go into clinical medicine, which was my real passion. I chose a rural area underserved where I thought I could make a difference. And I've had experience in that 30 years treating HIV, other infectious diseases, and practicing as a primary care a primary care medicine provider and being a hospitalist. My experiences during the pandemic treating COVID patients both in the COVID flu stage as outpatients and also as hospitalized patients in the ICU made me determined to prevent the COVID flu from progressing to the horrible, lonely cytokine storm suffering that I saw in the ICU and I still see it. We accomplished this with what I present here today. Like everything else in medicine, the goal is to treat early. COVID patients are difficult to treat when they get very sick. The Imperial Valley where I work, or where we work, became the COVID epicenter for California in June and July. Since early March, both in my Brawley Clinic and Dr. Brian Tyson's All Valley Urgent Care Clinic in El Central, where I also work, 
Over 25,000 fearful people were screened. Over 2,400 were COVID-19 positive, and we treated successfully over 1,000 high-risk and symptomatic ones. The interesting thing to me is that Dr. Tyson and I independently had came to the same protocol for that purpose back in March. And we, we based it upon the great work from Dr. Zelenko and Dr. Rao, actually. They're our heroes, actually. Uh, it was a triple hydroxychloroquine cocktail. HCQ, 3,200 milligrams over five days, azithromycin or, do or doxycycline, and especially zinc, which is often left out in the studies. The cocktail is best given early, as Dr. McCullough has indicated, within the first five to seven days where the patient is in the flu stage. The timing of the drug is when the virus is in a very active maximal replication phase in the upper respiratory tract, and our goal is, has been and still is to prevent it from entering the lower respiratory tract and to prevent hospitalization. And we achieved this in over 1,000 patients. And that uh, was involved reevaluating them at two to three day intervals. We blend in corticosteroids and prolong the HCQ treatment for five or more days if symptoms warrant, but they generally did not and do not. We use it especially in the high risk individuals, as Dr. McCullough indicated, the, those over 50 to 60, those with comorbidities, or actually in uh, anyone with moderate to severe flu symptoms. We want to avoid the COVID, long COVID syndrome in all patients that happens after they recover. The healthy do not need the treatment. I use this regimen to treat 31 elderly nursing home residents in an outbreak in June, and 29 recovered fully. The drug works mechanistically through multiple actions. The ionophore HCQ, the gun, and zinc, the bullet. HCQ blocks the sigma-1 receptor and has several other direct antiviral effects. The antibiotic also has an antiviral effect and potentiates the action of HCQ and zinc. As additional anti-COVID agents become available, they can be added to this regimen to enhance its efficacy. And we are routinely now combining ivermectin, which you mentioned, Chairman, uh, in a quadruple HCQ IVM cocktail with excellent results, since ivermectin is safe and has a different anti-COVID action. This becomes analogous to the use of multiple agents for HIV treatment, monoclonal antibodies from Regeneron and Lilly will be suitable also when readily available. The results are consistently good, often dramatic, with improvement within 48 hours. We wouldn't have stayed with this if it weren't helping people and, and always reliable. We've seen very few hospitalizations. We've seen not a single negative cardiac event. Our experiences are in line with all the studies that Dr. Rich has mentioned concerning early use of the HCQ cocktail. Let me be clear, this is only about the science the science of viral replication, the science of the stages of COVID, and the science why early treatment works. And early treatment has led us to actually try to communicate our approach. We've, on an, and we think it should be on a national level. We, we wrote a letter to, with my colleagues to the president, a letter to congressmen, a, a letter to the California Health Department, an open letter to Dr. Fauci, and a national plan for COVID-19. As we describe in the national plan, this approach would be part of the solution to the pandemic. Protect the vulnerable, and if high-risk individuals get sick, there is a solution for them with early treatment with the antiviral cocktail. If early treatment becomes widely available, people will be much more confident going back to work and sending their kids back to school. Thank you.
Thank you, Dr. Freed. Now, here's what's important. These three physicians, outstanding backgrounds and reputations, not a single problem in their careers, they will all be attacked. They will be shamed, deplatformed, and that's why I consider them heroes, medical heroes. There are over 900,000 more or less physicians in the United States. Why don't you take a look at those who are willing to risk everything that they've had in their lifetimes and distinguished career to tell the truth? Until you step up, until you uh, start to form groups and marches. And when was the last time we saw a group of medical doctors and nurses marching together, like 100,000 together? 100,000 is only about nine, uh, around 9 to 10%, more or less, of all of you. But we haven't seen two of you doing that. And those who have, like American doctors, uh, first-line uh, uh, doctors, they're, they're now over a 1,000. And those who started to sign a petition to, to stop the quarantine, there's now over 40,000. But the media won't touch it. They won't show the side of the story because the agenda is with Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci, the pharmaceutical companies, and all the legislators they control. I want to conclude today's program with some insights. COVID-19 has, has a dark side to it. My hope is that the vaccines work, but what I know will work, and I know will be far more successful than the vaccine, will be the surveillance matrix, the likes of which we've never previously encountered in science fiction, according to John Whitehead. Now, what am I talking about? What I'm talking about is this. Many of us, myself included, have lingering mistrust for good reason to be leery that the government has a long tendency of unleashing untold horrors upon the world in the name of global peace, of global freedom, of global uh, prosperity. But in fact, it's been nothing more than conquest, the acquisition of greater wealth, scientific experimentation, and technological advances, all packaged in the guise of for the greater good. It's never for the greater good. Indeed, we the people have been treated like lab rats by government agencies for decades now. We've been branded experimental. Why? Because, well, they did so without our knowledge or consent. And... You don't have to dig very deep to find all of this history. I published uh, this online, a history of all the secret experiments. Back in October 1989, I did a feature national magazine release story on secret experimentation, and it shocked people because it was so widespread. Over 1,900 separate experiments they had done, none of which was made public. So I do not trust anything, yet who is running the actual implementation of all this, uh, the people who have the GPS devices, surveillance, uh, non-lethal weapons, etc., and used it against us to track, control, and trap us. And why? They want us to fall in line. They simply want us to be obedient to what they're suggesting. And out of this will come the COVID-19 vaccines that owe a great debt to the Pentagon's Defense Advanced 
Research Projects Agency for its past work on how to weaponize and defend against infectious disease. And that's unfortunate because we, the people, through the National Institute of Health, gave $22 million to seven corporations to develop artificial intelligence, machine learning, etc., with smartphone apps, wearable devices, and software. From their own words, quote, they can identify and trace contacts of infected individuals, keep track of verified COVID test results, and monitor the health status of infected and potentially infected people. That means everyone. This is all what's behind Operation Warp Speed. So why should we be cautious? Well, because a lot of people are looking at individuals, but not in all of our singular humanists. Remaining singularly human and retaining your individuality and dominion over yourself, your mind, your body, your soul, in the face of corporate and government technologies that aim to invade, intrude, monitor, manipulate, and control us may be one of the greatest challenges before us. These COVID vaccine nine, vaccines, which rely upon messenger RNA technology that influences everything from viruses to memory, are merely the tipping point. The groundwork being laid with these vaccines is, to pro, is the prologue to what I believe will become the police state's conquest of a new, relatively unchartered frontier, the inner space specifically, the inner workings, the genetic, biological, biometric, mental, and emotional parts of each of our selves. If you were unnerved by the rapid deterioration of privacy under the surveillance state, prepare to be terrified by the surveillance matrix that will be ushered in on the heels of the government's rollout of COVID-19. Maybe you're not aware of Matrix. Uh, it was introduced into the cultural lexicon back in, remember the 1999 film, The Matrix, in which Neo, a computer programmer hacker, awakens in a reality that humans have been enslaved by artificial intelligence and, and are being harvested for their bioelectrical energy? hardwired to a neuro-interactive simulation of reality called the Matrix. Humans are kept inactive and docile while robotic androids gather the electric electricity their bodies generate in order for the machines who run the Matrix to maintain control. They impose what appears to be a perfect world for humans to keep them distracted, con uh, content, and submissive, docile. Here's the thing. Neo's matrix is not so far removed from our own technologically hardwired worlds in which we're increasingly beholden to corporate giants like Google and Facebook for powering so much of our lives and trusting in what is the ultimate truth and going to Wikipedia. Yes, because now the World Health Organization has stated that Wikipedia is the source of inf correct information, right information. There is nothing I trust about Wikipedia. Everything we do is increasingly dependent upon and ultimately controlled by our internet-connected electronic devices. So just keep this in mind. Remember, back in 2007, there were an estimated 10 million sensor devices connecting humans' utilized electronic devices, cell phones, laptops, etc., to the internet. By 2013, it had gone to 3.5 billion. And by the next 10 years, it's estimated to be 100 trillion. Much of, if not all, of our electronic devices will be connected to Google, 
a neural network that approximates a massive global brain. Google's resources beyond anything the world has ever seen includes the huge data sets that result from one billion people using Google every single day in Google Knowledge Graph, which consists of 800 million concepts and billions of relationships between them. The end goal? The creation of a new human species, so to speak, and the National Security Agency, the Pentagon, and the matrix of surveillance agencies are part of the plan. As a member, I had him on the program, William Benny, one of the highest level whistleblowers to ever emerge from the National Security Agency, said the ultimate goal of the National Security Agency is total population control. Mind you, this isn't population control in the classic sense. It's more about controlling the population through singularity a marriage of sorts between machine and human beings in which artificial intelligence and the human brain will merge to form a superhuman mind. Google will know the answer to your question before you have asked it. That is transhumanism. And that is where we're going. The term singularity, that is, computers simulating human life itself, was coined years ago by a mathematician genius uh, Stanislaw Ulam and John von Neumann. And uh, so we are approaching some essential singularity states right now, and this vaccine is the beginning of it. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you all for listening, and have a nice day.